Hello and welcome to Food Systems, a podcast from the Forum for the Future of Agriculture, where we discuss issues that can shape a sustainable food system, from farm to fork, from policy to consumers, and everything in between. I'm your host, Robert Graff, and you can find us on Twitter at Forum for Ag. In the aftermath of FFA 2021, these episodes will be available every week on all major podcast platforms. Before we get started, we would like to say a quick thank you to the FFA founding partners, the European Landowners Organization and Syngenta, as well as the FFA strategic partners, Cargill, the Nature Conservancy, Thought for Food and the World Wildlife Fund. Please enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome back to a new episode of Food Systems. Today we are talking to David Cleary. He is the Director for Agriculture at the Nature Conservancy and has previously worked extensively in the Amazon and Brazil. In the run-up to our FFA regional event in Portugal, we'll be talking about sustainability in international trade today. David, thank you so much for joining Food Systems. It's a pleasure. Uh, it's been more than 15 years ago since you were involved in shaping a partnership between the Nature Conservancy and the trading company Cargill. If you look back on that period, how have these partnerships for sustainability in global trade evolved? What, what have you seen and learned? I think two things. One is they've become more structural and more focused along the entire supply chain. About 15 years ago, it was more focused on local geographies and local problems. Um, the other the other difference I would say is that we're much more sophisticated these days in working also with the financial sector and looking at the whole question of financial incentives. So we have many more economists and, and people with the finance sector background working in the NGO world now than we did back then. Have the results become better over time as well? If you look at what, what's being done now versus what's being done 10 or 15 years ago. Well, you'd have to say at one level, and the most important level, no, because the level of tropical deforestation is still you know, fairly stable at a, a, a level higher than we'd like to see it. And the history of the last 10, 15 years is we've seen improvements in some areas that have lasted for a while and then, and then reversions back to this, this more destructive mean. That's been, certainly been the case in the Amazon, where there was a strong fall in deforestation about 10 years ago, but it's been going up again three or four years um, for the last three or four years. Indonesia was much worse than the Amazon for a period, but is now actually better. And there have been recent improvements. So it's been a bit like whack-a-mole. You know, some, some places have improved, other places get worse, but, but it's difficult to say that the deforestation situation has improved over the last 10 or 15 years, unfortunately. If we look at the history, if you say, oh, if we'd have known what we know now 10 or 15 years ago, this is what we should have done from the jump. Is there anything in particular that we say, that's what we should have yeah. gotten right earlier? We should have paid more attention to financial incentives and the economics of transitioning to zero deforestation production um, at the farm level. Um, you can only go so far with command and control systems, um, and you need a combination of both command and control, strong regulation that gives you the sort of floor from which you work, um, but without making the numbers work for farmers. In the final analysis, success is achieved by farmers changing their behavior, and they change their behavior on the basis of what they think is economically advantageous, and there's limits to what regulators can do around that. Is that a situation that's improving now? I mean, we talk, we've talked on a previous podcast about sort of ESG and sustainable investing. 
Is it is this a real drive? Do you think, or is this is this greenwashing? I think there is a lot of capital out there, far more than used to be, um, you know, which is prepared to sort of take a, a longer term sort of impact investing sort of type of view, uh, type of perspective, and that's the type of capital you need to get these get these things off the ground. Um, I think ESG is much more visible these days. Um, I think it's led to some really strong improvements on the human rights levels. Um, you, know, you see, for example, you know, the cotton industry has really improved a great deal. Um, so I think it's been very effective in some levels. But again, on the deforestation front, um, it's I, I think it's oversimplifying to say that commitments companies have made a greenwashing. I think that they're genuinely meant and felt. I don't believe there's cynicism at the headquarters levels where these form, where these commitments are typically formulated. Um, but I do feel that um, implementing those commitments comes up against real political difficulties at the business unit level. And uh, so far, at least in most companies, hasn't been enough political will at the headquarters level to drive through that. And again, I think the question of incentives there is key. Um, if you're just putting this unfunded mandate from headquarters down to the business unit, it's a very difficult conversation. If we look at particularly the, the Amazon region and the issue of deforestation, uh, there's a lot of arguments about what drives it and where it goes. But I think we can all agree that one of them is the expansion of, I'm going to use the word industrial agriculture, driven by trade flow. So we're particularly we're talking about soy, uh, palm oil, some other big export cash crops. Is it right that the EU essentially continues with such exports with some conditions on it rather than improve its own protein production or simply just telling its citizens, look, we have to eat less meat because the protein we import is not is harming the Amazon region? Well, I think it's obviously this is a conversation that goes beyond the Amazon. It, it covers palm oil coming from Indonesia. It covers cocoa and coffee coming from West Africa. Um, those are important industries in in those tropical countries um, and particularly in West Africa and Indonesia they support a lot of small farmers so we don't want to choke off EU demand we want to send <clears throat> a, a signal that says we want to continue importing these these commodities to support your economy but our demand you know to satisfy our demand you need to meet certain conditions that are sort of consistent with our, our values and our environmental concerns. Um, and I think you can do that through uh, a number of different ways. And there's been successes on that front. So most European imports of palm oil are now RSPO certified, for example, which is um, you know as good as you can get in terms of a certification standard. Your problem is that you've got other commodities, particularly soy and beef, um, and the embedded sort of uh, deforestation in, for example, poultry, because that's fed on you know, animal feed that is, is you know, soy is the main ingredient. Um, certification is just not going to work for those commodities. It's not going to get enough market penetration. Um, I think for an international trade agreement, the most you can do um, is insist on legality um, and you know, verified legality in, the, uh, in, in your commodity imports. Um, and that, I think, is, 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 is an important theme in current trade discussions between the EU, um, Mercosur um, and, and, and other trading blocs. That's important because the monitoring and control and verification systems you need to set up to establish legality can also uh, serve as a very useful platform for more rigorous uh, monitoring and verification systems 
that meet the zero deforestation demand that the average European consumer has. Um, so it's a big step towards it. Um, and the reality is that any international trade agreement, um, if your exporting country believes that there's a problem with the conditions that you're imposing and that they're commercially unfair, and it's not really about mark, uh, it's not really about environment. It, you're just using the environment as a backdoor way of restricting market access. They can take you to the ITO, the International Trading Organization, and they'll win. So you know that's I think the critical issue is that the EU uh, needs to focus uh, very strongly. Um, on uh, the, the obligation to establish the legality of commodity exports. Um, and that sends a really strong signal and also gives a platform uh, for more rigorous uh, uh, approaches that you know, the consumer can also want. It just makes life easier for, 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 for all concerned, especially the, the companies that are involved in the trade flows. I wanted to come. I want to come back on uh, trade deals in in a moment, but I want to speak on something you you just said that in some cases certification is not enough. That that if we, if certification won't do it, where do we proceed then? How, how do we make uh, the system work better? Um, I think you uh, you establish you grow the proportion of deforestation free commodity in you know in that trade flow. Um, and you put an obligation on the companies at all stages of the supply chain, um, from the farm gate to the supermarket, to monitor and establish the, you know, that deforestation-free status. The reality is that most of the trade flows, um, most of the volume of the commodities are already deforestation-free because they come from landscapes that were consolidated and turned over to industrial agriculture a very long time ago. Um, so we know, for example, that you know coming out of the Brazilian Cerrado, which is the major soy producing um, area in Brazil, um, most of the larger companies have got um, you know probably between seventy and ninety percent deforestation free flow already. So it's a question of getting from what is already a really high number to a uh, you know to to ninety eight. 98, 97%, you're never going to get to 100%, unfortunately. Um, so it's not beyond the bounds of, of possibility. Um, and the way that you can just make that incremental progress um, is first by sweating the illegally deforested material out of the out of the supply chain. But in places like the Sahara, just focusing on illegal deforestation isn't going to get you anywhere near the sort of you know higher 90, 90%. Um, so you need to put the obligation on the trading companies that actually there's six or seven of them that control you know 90% plus of the of, of, of the trade flow. Um, they need to be you know, documenting and demonstrating and verifying and monitoring that their supply is increasingly deforestation free. Um, there's technologies to do that, the cost to do it are, are not particularly high. Um, it's largely a question of will to actually get it done and a combination of will and, um, you know, consumer uh, you know, pressure um, and getting those financial incentives in place that make it worthwhile for farmers to do it. Um, because the reality is that you know, the EU is not alone in the global commodity marketplace. China actually um, dominates more and more of the market. So if the EU just puts the shutters up and, and says, well, we're just not going to take it, um, you know, the producer is always going to have the alternative of selling to China. Um, so that's the sort of problem here, is that if the EU is too rigorous and too sort of you know, um, ideological in its approach, um, it's not going to solve the problem. It's just going to displace the problem. 
does that just mean that we need to increase some of the prices for the products produced with things like soy or, or South American beef? Or where, if we create financial incentives, who's going to cough up the money to make them real? Where does the money come from? Yeah, it's going to have to come from everyone. Um, and you can't increase, I mean, you can't increase the price. Like commodity trade runs on really, really small margins. Um, what this is basically about is uh, there are trillions of dollars that flow through the, that flow th that flow through these these supply chains. Um, so what we need to do is shave off a relatively small proportion um, of that funding um, of that flow and return it to producers. Now that's going to be a painful process for the companies that are involved in it because the traders are going to have to accept that the their very small margins are still going to have to like you know employ some of that margin to provide incentives to producers and the supermarkets are going to have to swallow some of the you know some of some of that as well but i think the critical point is that everyone including critically governments needs to recognize that doing this and resolving the deforestation question that will take care of a sixth of world ghg emissions so it has to be part of any proper integrated approach to climate change moving forward. So it is a global problem and it's going to need a collective solution. So I think the private sector players and the companies are going to have to come up with some of the capital necessary. But you can leverage a lot more of the capital necessary from third, party, from third parties and particularly from governments, particularly from impact investors and you know, the more enlightened uh, part, part of the finance sector. So... The reality is, is we're in this situation because capitalism just isn't properly pricing environmental externalities. So there has to be a collective effort to correct that. Um, and it's, you know, I think the companies are quite right when they say that the, 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 not all the burden should fall on them. It shouldn't. Um, you know, if consumers want this, then they need to pay for it. But the best way for consumers to pay for it is not through higher prices at the supermarket, because that's going to that's going to just reduce the you know the, the the market for these commodities they should pay through through a tiny fraction of their taxes because they are part of societies where the governments collectively recognize that this is actually you know a, a climate change issue and this is a climate change strategy and it should be part of the broader arsenal um, of climate change strategies that we're constantly talking about in relation to the energy sector and the transport sector and what have you so let's turn now to, I think, what may be, if not the most controversial, but certainly one of the more talked about trade deals in recent memory is the uh, EU-Mercosur agreement, which has been signed by the European Commission, but not ratified by the member states. There was recently a report out from the uh, EU Ombudsman that the updated sustainability impact assessment was not completed before this deal was actually signed. What does that what does that in practice tell us about the priorities of these trade deals is the environment still you know uh, the second banana to the cars and and the and, and the beef essentially well yes um and i think what it tells you most tellingly i think is about the culture the sort of institutional bureaucratic culture um within the you know the, the european sort of trade negotiate trade negotiation department um it, it Anybody standing outside, it's blindingly obvious, I think, that the, the kind of controversies that you've had around the Mercosur agreement were going to erupt and they were going to focus on the deforestation question um, and potentially indigenous rights questions as well. Um, 
anyone you know who doesn't spend their entire time worrying about you know car import quotas and stuff that's obvious so uh, i think the main conclusion that we we can take here um is that the european commission's trade negotiation structure um it just hasn't mainstreamed um sustainability concerns to the extent that they are already um in governments um and uh, among the among the voting and consuming populations in the EU and that's a major problem um so i would expect and hope that over the next year or so um we'll see the commission learning a little bit from this experience and you know perhaps some uh, some long overdue changes will be made so if we were to give you sort of a very broad mandate to change or even just reject the 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 agreement as it stands are there significant changes that could still be made to this agreement that you would say okay that makes it more palatable or should we just say no we're scrapping it and let's try again well my own personal position as a general principle is that trade deals are good um and particularly trade deals with um you know countries in the global south um you know i i think we should as 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 countries and as societies be as open as we possibly can um to the goods that um you know tropical countries um can can supply um there's direct social benefits for them and for us um however um i think we've already talked about the importance of uh, having policies in place that reflect the sort of values of the importing country and that send out the kind of demand signal that can be both socially and economically helpful um in the origination countries um we've also talked about how you know there is a legal framework around um international trade deals um you need to send i think we need to as we've discussed we need to focus on uh, legality um i think it's critical um for uh, all commodities really but especially um you know environmentally sensitive and forest risk commodities um that you can't do anything you can't import anything into the EU um unless you've got a convincing robust verification system so that we know that what's coming in has been produced legally and that's not just in relation to um you know deforestation and environmental concerns but also in relation to indigenous rights to labor rights you know this is a Uh, a a really you know important way of of influencing uh, our our sort of consumer uh, you know sending the right kind of of demand signal across a range of of, of issues uh, economic as well as social well this brings me to an interesting uh, point you've mentioned legality now several times um to be sure this is there are international agreements trade deals have components that are legally enforced but what we have seen in practice in the past is that it can be very difficult for especially indigenous populations or smaller producing groups to actually seek and gain redress when they are faced with the possibility of long drawn out lawsuits in different jurisdictions against big multinational corporations how does how do how do you square that i mean the principle of legality versus the practice well the eu has um diplomatic representation um in every single country that it's at, um it's 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 importing um commodities from um i think it should be um we talked about the need for some sort of cultural and organizational changes in the trade negotiation bit of the eu um i think there also needs to be some cultural and organizational changes um in the sort of diplomatic representation of the eu overseas um you know i've had the 
pleasure of working, you know, on an EU Commission-funded project um, for four years uh, in in uh, in the Amazon. Um, they were excellent to work with, but it was very clear that their diplomatic team was incredibly overworked. Um, it was a small, um, small, small group of people, dedicated, hardworking, um, but you know the volume of work was was just too great. Um, I think the EU has to invest actively um, in its capacity uh, overseas, you know, in country because there's no substitute for for for, for in country presence. Um, it needs to be monitoring, you know, the situation on the ground. Um, it needs to be, you know, talking to um, uh, you know, the indigenous organizations who are highly organized in, in, in every Latin American country. Uh, if stuff is going on, um, you'll find out about it, but only if you've got, um, you know, people in country who are, who are involved in those conversations and, and have those relationships. I don't see that as particularly difficult to do. Before we get to the final question, I wanted to ask you, you seem still quite optimistic about the future of sustainability in international trade. That's certainly not a sentiment shared by everybody. But what makes you optimistic about that future? Well, a number of things. I mean, I, I, I don't think that I'm blindly optimistic. Um, you know, as I've, I, as I've said, I think, you know, the metric of deforestation levels, you know, hasn't, is, it, it's not great. Um, I think two, two things really make me optimistic. One is the, uh, the, the level of civil society organization that you've seen grow uh, in producing countries um, over the last uh, over the last 10 15 years and this isn't just in Brazil it's a, it, it's across the board um, so you see it in Africa you see it in Southeast Asia as well um, and those uh, organizations have more financial resources now they're better organized they've got much better technology um, that's a really important you know uh, advance we've got people walking around sensitive areas with sort of you know handheld gps things we've got like global forest watch we've got all kinds of tools that we didn't have before that civil society organizations can use so that's one uh, reason for optimism i think the other reason for optimism is you see everywhere how climate change um and esg and you know all of that uh, is shooting up political agendas um, you see how politicians across the world, whatever their political complexion, um, Bolsonaro in the last few weeks being a, a stunning example, um, well, like it or not, you know, hostile or friendly, they have to respond. Um, and I think it's reasonable that you know, what we're seeing now is just a foretaste of where we're going to be in five or ten years' time. Um, so that does make me feel you know, optimistic. I don't see how... Uh, even the worst actors here are going to be able to resist the sort of pressure that's that's building over these issues. Well, I want to ask you our final question, which is the same one we ask of everybody, which is if you were to give one policy or one idea to make a mu this food system more sustainable, what would it be? Well, my particular thing is deforestation. So I'm going to zero in on what's the single most important thing to get deforestation down. Um, it's a, a, a habitat credit some kind of credit for farmers um, to preserve the vegetation um, on their land and transition to zero deforestation production. Um, and right now it doesn't exist. I think the existing kind of inducements to farmers through carbon markets, offsets of various kind, biodiversity credits, none of them work at the scale necessary. And they're all really complicated. Um, so we have to have something that basically throws all of that out the window uh, a completely new 
system. And I would actually um, just take this opportunity to plug a recent initiative called RIMBA, which I think is a really interesting example of how this might work. It's a coalition um, of a number of uh, actually European companies, Unilever, Nestle, um, a couple of others. They've got together with, uh, with uh, UK aid, with uh, a couple of uh, uh, financial institutions, and they've set up this fund um, to attract uh, uh, impact capital uh, to fund biodiversity projects, largely in Indonesia. Um, and I think you, know, the, you could do that on such a larger scale um, and you could get similar coalitions um, behind that kind of thing. Um, and you could deploy it along supply chains instead of channeling it to individual projects. So that's the kind of thing, it's not exactly the thing, but it's the kind of thing that I think we're going to need to see over the next few years. Um, and once we see it, and I have no doubt that we will, because this conversation is moving really fast, I think then finally we will see some really significant downturns in deforestation. David Cleary, Director for Agriculture at the Nature Conservancy, um, and also speaker at our upcoming event on 26 May uh, at the FFA Regional Event in Portugal on this very issue. Thank you very much for joining uh, Food Systems today. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've been listening to an episode of Food Systems, a podcast brought to you by the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. In the aftermath of the FFA 2021 month of March, we will be going to a weekly release schedule to bring you follow-up interviews with some of our great speakers. To make sure you get all updates, please subscribe on your podcast app as well as on Twitter at Forum for Ag to get content on this podcast, news, as well as all other month of March related content. Please check out our website www.forumforagriculture.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy your day.